Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. This episode is part of a limited series featuring CTOs in the greater Seattle area. We will be digging deeper into the challenges, opportunities, innovations, and the future of tech. Who better to lead these conversations than Fuel Talent's very own Albert Squires and Derek Stevens. We hope that you enjoy the CTO limited series of the What Fuels You podcast. Welcome to the first installment of the What Fuels You podcast CTO limited series. My name is Albert Squires and I'm the managing director of the technology practice. Today's guest is David Glick. Uh, David is the CTO of Flex, a logistics technology company that brings deep logistics expertise and enterprise-grade technology to deliver innovative e-commerce fulfillment, retail distribution, same-day delivery, and network capacity programs for Fortune 500 companies. As the CTO, David is responsible for the design and development of the Flex technology platform. Before Flex, he spent nearly 20 years at Amazon, including five years as the VP of Fulfillment Technology, where he oversaw the development and functionality of the technology within their fulfillment centers, as well as the technology for Amazon's transportation systems uh, for two of those years. So David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Uh, it's great to be here. Yeah, I have to say, um, you know, obviously knowing the guys at Flex from the early days, right when they came up uh, to Seattle, it's it's extremely exciting to see you leading that organization. That's great. Um, you know, they did a great job, and um, one of the fantastic things was they they went from zero to one, and then they said, you know, we need we need to bring some new people in um, to augment, uh, what we've done so far. And, and they were uh, courageous in doing that. Yeah, totally. Totally. Well, like, uh, all of our episodes, we start off with some rapid fire. So, uh, let's, let's get into it. Morning or night person. I'm a night person. Yeah. That seems to be, uh, the typical engineer, uh, not, not to have any stereotypes, but, uh, not surprising there at all. What about uh, masters? This this question comes up all the time with me. Masters in computer science versus a BS in in computer science and going directly into the workforce. You know, it's it's a hard question, but what I've seen is the people who do really well have masters in computer science. That getting that extra depth of knowledge before you start applying it is super helpful. Now that said, um, while most SDE1s at Amazon and other places have computer science degrees. It turns out that a third of the principal engineers don't have computer science wow, degrees. that is fascinating. Yeah, and so what we found is that, you know, as you get more senior, writing code becomes less important and being able to design system, understand requirements, uh, work with people, follow, um, you know, the values or leadership principles um, that are laid out by the company, those are, those trump sort of pure technical skills. 
Yeah, that that makes that makes complete sense. And knowing the uh, restrictive amount of uh, small number of principal engineers, I, I'm going to have to dig into that uh, a little bit later on. What about if you were to build a startup from scratch? Uh, what language would you choose and why? I would choose Java uh, because everybody knows Java. And you know, many of these um, many startups start with Ruby on Rails. Uh, because it's the simplest and it's kind of integrated, but that leads you to five years down the road, that leads you to a, a big uh, deconstruct a monolith project. And, you know, we have people who, I've worked with people who want to use Go and Jython and Scala and all these things. And, you know, I, I, I talk to my more technical friends because I don't have a CS degree, I have a, I have a physics degree. And so I go to my folks who have CS degrees and, you know, the principal engineer always says, I have this conversation with people every week. Like, we want to use Scala. We want to use Go. And it's like all the tools support Java. Everybody knows how to use it. Let's do that. Yeah. And the, the, if you're building a platform, let's say from Go, I mean, the, the talent pool is just obviously uh, smaller. So that's something to, to take into consideration. If you were to be mentored by a, a business leader or a technology leader, uh, past or current, who would it be and why? I think, um, you know, I, I've worked with Jeff Bezos before. I, you know, I've been in meetings with him. Um, and so we'll set that one out. But I think the only person who's nearly as visionary as Jeff is Elon Musk. And so I have a ton of respect for him the way they're doing things completely different. And, you know, I see Tesla and SpaceX and all these other things, you know, will be the most, most impactful and most uh, valuable company in the next hundred years. Yeah, hundred percent. I'm sure somebody with the uh, physics background, they can also geek out in that, that area a little bit as well. Well, I love that, you know, his, his philosophy is, you know, they talk about first principles philosophy and the only laws you can't break are the laws of physics. Yeah, exactly. And so we constrain ourselves so often to, to perceived constraints, which aren't really there. And I think that um, Elon and others uh, are, are looking past those constraints yeah. and, and make it super valuable. Yeah, 100%. Now, as far as books, I don't know if um, that's a passion of yours. It is for mine. What book has impacted you most? Yeah, I, I used to read a lot, but I only read when I go to bed. And so I don't, I try not to read business books because like if I read, what was it? Daniel Goldman's emotional intelligence while I'm laying in bed, I'm like, oh, am I doing that? Or am I not yeah. doing that? Am I, am I emotionally intelligent or not? And so I can't sleep. Um, but the one book I would say uh, that had the biggest effect on my life was probably Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Because I read that when my son was born 17 years ago and um, you know, I was like, I'm going to get a 15 year mortgage, and I'm going to pay it down fast, and I'm going to have no debt. And, you know, his point was like, you need to go buy assets and debt is good because they help you buy assets and assets appreciate and debts reduce. And so, you know, I guess, in retrospect, had I just held my Amazon stock, that would have been the most savvy financial decision. But since I, you know, listened to everyone and diversified, yeah. I diversified into buying real estate and other things which produce cash flow and, and that allowed me to um, retire early. Mm. Yeah, nobody could have obviously predicted where Amazon stock uh, was going uh, over the last 20 years. I have to say, uh, we have the same book. Um, the first book that was given to me uh, was How to Win Friends and Influence People. 
And then from there is Rich Dad Poor Dad and just went down that rabbit hole, got the board game. Uh, I have to say, I totally agree with you, put, put uh, a different track on my life. So uh, very cool. Well, how'd you get into this? I mean, what was your childhood look like? You know, what age did you get interested in technology? I know you grew up and eventually uh, went into physics, but what, what role did technology play uh, as a child? Yeah, um, well, so my, my dad was a faculty member uh, at Wayne State when I was growing up, Wayne State University in Detroit, and then eventually the dean at Missouri and then provost at Arizona State and Iowa State, and then eventually president at University of Nevada. And so what I, when I was a kid, all of our friends were either doctors, lawyers, or professors, all my parents' friends, and I would go to dad's work, and he'd come in, and people would say, you know, present something to him, and he'd make a decision, and I said, you know, I want to be a professor. Um, and what I learned was that what he did wasn't being a professor, <laughs> it was being the chairman or the dean, and that he was an administrator and a people leader. And um, so I, I followed in his footsteps through college and grad school, and about three years into graduate school, I called him and said, you know, I'm not very good at physics. And he said, oh, I wasn't very good at chemistry either, but I'm a good people leader. And I was like, shit, you should have told me that three years ago. <laughs> and uh, I would have done something different. But, um, you know, I've, I muscled through the program. And, um, you know, I, I ended up, my wife was actually a very good biochemist. And we both finished our PhDs at the same time. And we decided I wasn't going to go into physics. And she was going to go into biochemistry. And so we decided Boston, San Francisco, or Seattle. And she got a postdoc at Seattle and I moved out here with her and we lived in my friend's basement uh, because we, you know, she was making $30,000 and I was unemployed. Yeah. And uh, fortunately, one of my friends from the physics program had gone to be a CS rep at Amazon and she was able to get my resume routed to the right place. Um, to, and I was an, a junior IT PM when I started at Amazon. And was that the first, so did you go straight from your PhD to Amazon or did you have any background leading uh, software or logistics businesses before joining Amazon? I didn't know anything about any of that. Mm. <laughs> I had been the, the assistant system administrator uh, to pay for um, grad school. Uh, and so I had learned how to, you know, type ls-al yep, yep. and, um, you know, a few other commands to run the backup tapes. Um, and, and I came in and said, you know, I don't have any technical skills nor any experience, but I'm young and strong and I'll work hard. And back then that was enough with, with Sarah's, um, uh, with Sarah's backing, there was a lot of, you know, we like Sarah. And so she, she trusts you. So we trust you. And my first role, you know, I got there and, and it was November 98. So everybody was busy mm -hmm. and they were like, go find something to do. And so I went down to the warehouse and I was packing books because we did that back then. As a PM, as a PM. Yes, as wow. a project manager. Um, and I, I volunteered to go down there sort of first of December. And a few days later, the, the email came out from Joy Covey, who was the chief financial officer at the time, that said, what are you doing right now? If it's not more important than delighting our customers, stop what you're doing and go down to the warehouse and help pack books. And I was at home at the time. And I was watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It was 8.54 on a Tuesday night. And so I watched the last six minutes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and I drove to the warehouse. And for the next two weeks, um, my job from midnight to 8 a.m. was to divert packages down our automated packing lines 
and the small packages went to the left. Uh, the medium packages went to slam line two and the big ones went to slam line three. And um, that's where I became passionate about automated sortation. <laughs> and I was tapped like at 4 a.m. down at the warehouse. And they said, we're gonna open up a bunch more warehouses. We need you to go home. Since you finished your shift yeah. <laughs> at the warehouse, we need you to go back to the office and start ordering equipment and making sure putting together a schedule to stand up the first warehouse, which was in Fernley, Nevada. Wow. Incredible. I, I uh, maybe jumping ahead a little bit, but one of the uh, principles that I've been following about you is solve problems for your manager. And this was for the you know CFO responding to the CFO. But talk to me a little bit about how that that uh, philosophy has come about. I see you get uh, a diverse set of reactions uh, when you talk about <laughs> when you talk about that. But yeah, I would love to hear your philosophy on that and how you applied that uh, to the promotion ranks as you moved up the chain? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing that I had problems with was that I, I always thought I was right. And it, it was more important for me to be right than anything else. And so I would fight with my manager when I thought they were wrong. And I would lollygag and not do whatever it was. And in fact, I had um, interaction where uh, Jeff Wilkie had a report that he wanted me to write. And I just couldn't get my head around writing it, and, you know. And and um, and when when my successor took over uh, running pricing, um, I said the first thing I want you to do, my, my my advice is the first thing to do is build this report, <laughs> because Jeff uh, doesn't like it every quarter when I meet with him, and I haven't built the report yet. Anyway, so I decided, and I realized at some point that my life would be easier <laughs> if um, I just solved my boss's problems first, mm -hmm. and then went about my business. And so when I joined Flex, um, my first, uh, Carl Siebrecht is the founder and CEO, and he's great. Yeah. He's a fantastic leader. My first one-on-one, he said, I don't want to be in the details of your business. And I said, look, I don't want you in the details of my business. So we're agreed on that. But tell me what the two most important things for you are. And he did. And one of them was to write a sort of a three-year vision document on what the platform would be. And I said, you know, Carl, this is going to probably take me six months because I don't know anything about what we're doing today and, um, and so on. And, and he's like, sure. And then my, the next week he said, you know, how's that report going? <laughs> how's that paper going? And uh, so I realized I just come in at 6 a.m. and knock out this paper. Mm. Um, and, you know, it took two hours, wrote it. He loved it. Uh, we never really actioned it, you know, but I wrote it and I was able to go back to what I was doing. And so... Like, A, your life is easier if you solve your boss's problems because you can go back to doing what you want to do. B, bosses value people who solve their problems, who turn their, their S team goals from red to green. Totally. And if you, you know, if you want your brand to be, oh, Dave's lights out, as one of the fr my friends said, like, I don't have to worry about that. I just tell him what to do and he does stuff. A, that, that everybody wants you to work for them if that happens. And B, what you find is, your boss doesn't have that many things that are important to them. If you knock those out, you can go back to doing your job. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that's uh makes it so much easier uh, and yet so much uh, pushback on, on this topic uh, often. So maybe talk a little bit about the, as you continue to grow, what principles you brought to the table. Um, there's obviously a very minuscule percentage of people that achieve the level of success that you did uh, at, at Amazon. 
was there any underlying principles in the backdrop of this, uh, obviously becoming a CTO as a as an engineering manager, even let's call it a SDE one at Amazon who has this vision of uh, eventually becoming a CTO of a tech company. But looking back on it, what are some maybe principles or lessons that you've learned that you would like to share? Uh, yeah, the fa my favorite framework uh, that I share with folks, um, and this was uh, shared with me by Kim Rackmiller, who is a boss I work for, who's amazing. And I think she's you know, semi-retired now. Anyway, uh, when I was a, a first line manager, she said, Dave, the way you think about it is product, process, people. So if you're a junior engineer, level four, or you know whatever level you have at your company, all you have to the only value you're providing is the product, right? When you're sleeping and you're not typing on the keyboard, uh, you're not adding value to the company. As you get to be a senior engineer or first line manager, or senior manager, um, you are building processes, right? You're putting the house in order, you're building roadmaps, you are um, doing ticket reviews, you are setting up on calls, you're setting up an environment where the engineers can succeed and produce a lot of product. And then as you get to be director and VP, you are spending your time hiring the right people, assessing the people on your team, coaching them, giving feedback, and then if necessary, managing their performance and managing them out. And so it's kind of a spectrum because even as a VP, you're producing product. Like I had to produce this vision document yep. for Carl. But um, what I found is that uh, the most leveraged thing that I can do is bring in great engineering talent and bringing great leadership and it, it turns out that that makes my life easier as well because if I have a great VP of product I can just hand that vision document off to them and they can write it and I can review it and it's much easier to review than to write and they can solve problems for you yep 100 percent Right. One, one of the things being in the uh, recruiting industry for the last 15 years and doing a lot of uh, CTO, VP of engineering searches, I, I've often heard the initial um, skill set of the, one of the first engineers that we brought in was great. They were able to architect the system. They were able to hire and lead a couple engineers, but that's not the person that's going to lead 50, who's not the person that's going to lead 500. How have you been able to morph? I mean, obviously you didn't join uh, Amazon when there's four people, but how are, how are you personally able to morph through all of that transition and essentially scale with your career when so many people struggle with that? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I, I was a copycat, I think. I had great <laughs> role models in Kim Rackmiller, Suresh Kumar, who's now the CTO at Walmart, um, Rick Beatty, um, these are, these are bosses that I had. Dave Clark was a boss. Uh, and so I got to interact with all these amazing leaders as well as my peers who, you know, a bunch of us who knew each other when we were managers, then senior managers and directors and VPs. And we were, you know, not necessarily comp competitive, like, because there wasn't like a quota for only so many people could get promoted, but we were personally competitive yeah, with each other. Yeah. And so I had a ton of role models to pick and choose and like the process product people um, framework came from Kim and the way Suresh ran his calibrations or OLRs, we called them at Amazon. Uh, I just copied those. And, um, you know, I, I wish I had some original thoughts. Most of my thoughts are, you know, either complete plagiarism of Suresh and Kim's <laughs> or they're 
sort of things that I came to the conclusion of when listening to, you know, after listening to all the leaders and all the way up to Jeff Bezos, um, I got to interact with a little bit. I once heard a podcast and someone was talking about Bob Dylan and they said, I consider Bob Dylan the man with the pen and that there's, there's music flying by us every day. It's in the air and someone has to reach up and grab the music and, and put it in their pen and put it on paper. And Bob Dylan is the man with the pen. And so I kind of feel like that, not, not that I've ever achieved any greatness as Bob Dylan, but that like there's all of these great management managers and leaders around me and there's management books and leadership training and all those things. And so if you, if you let all of those wash over you or fly by you and then you, you grab the best of each one, um, that's been my, my, uh, my idea yeah. or my philosophy. Be a sponge. Be a sponge. Yep, 100%. A selective sponge. Yes, there we go. There we go. Awesome. And then before we jump into some of the uh, technical conversation topics, I'm curious to hear a little bit about your transition to a CTO. Um, I'm sure your organization was significantly larger at Amazon. How has your role changed uh, to be a C-suite employee? And then what is maybe a misconception that that people have with this, what a CTO's role is? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, CTO is just a title. Um, you know, I, I managed 3,000 people at Amazon in fulfillment and logistics. And now I manage, I, you know, when I joined Flex, it was 22 people. And people said, oh, I'm a, it must be completely different. And it's not. You know, at this level, it's, you know, how do I hire the right people, um, promote the right people, uh, give feedback, uh, manage performance, um, put the people in the right positions. And then, so that's what I spend a ton of time doing today. The first two weeks, I ended up flying out to a warehouse where we deploy some software and it didn't work very well with our biggest customer. And our biggest customer wanted us to, wanted to fire us. And they said, you know, if you don't fix this by this weekend, we're going to fire you. And, um, and so I flew out there with a bunch of engineers and we were working, you know, dawn to dusk, we were deploying new software, you know, we were organizing in a way um, so that we had, you know, punch lists and we knew what we were doing and we had to call the customer and give them updates. Um, And so that's not, that's not people, right? That's product. That's like getting in there close to the metal, which is the same thing I did in 1999, (laughs) Uh, standing up the first warehouse at Amazon and shaking out the WMS, uh, which was my first job. And so uh, it, it has been great to be able to get back to that. Yeah. Right. Coming and we ended up circle. and we ended up flying people out to a warehouse the first year because uh, not enough labor showed up, which is exactly what we did at Amazon in 99 and 98. And so uh, those are all great things to do. But it, there's a there's an anecdote where a guy's in a hole. You've probably heard this. And a doctor walks by and says, you know, here's a prescription and throws it in the hole. And then the, you know, the lawyer walks by and he, you know, he writes them a, you know, a lawsuit to sue the person who pushed him in the hole and so on. And then the friend walks by and they jump in the hole. And the person says, Well, now we're both in the hole. (laughs) No, I've been here before though, and I know the way out. So follow me. And so I feel like I jumped in the hole when I joined Flex and we were able to, you know save that deal, which was amazing. And, you know, we were worried. One of the best things that came out, out of it was that all of the engineers who flew out there with me, people were saying, uh, 
oh, the, you're going to kill the engineers. They're going to quit. You know, they're not used to this. And every single one of them came back and said, this is the best experience I've had in my life. Wow. That I got to meet my customer. We worked hard. We achieved things. And, you know, whether you're at Amazon or you're at Flex or you're someplace else, um, if you don't get to achieve things, which is what you see when companies turn to day two, and we work with, you know, we see companies all the time. Yep. If you don't get to achieve things, that's no good. Yeah, impact, right? Uh, I think everybody's striving for impact. Wanted to talk a little bit about thought processes as you scale an organization through multiple funding rounds. And so maybe we can start off with, you know, what indicators did you look at when joining Flex? If I recall, there's Series B or Series C when you joined? They had just raised a Series B when I joined. Okay, okay. And I wish I had a... I wish I had a great story of I did my due diligence and <laughs> like I, you know, I had a checklist that I checked off and it turned out, so I had retired from Amazon and I got bored after a few months and I started going looking for work and it turns out, you know, people will say, oh, you can write your ticket and so on. But if you want to stay in Seattle, or at least at the time, there just weren't very many options. Uh, you know, there was, there was some unicorn startups, there was Microsoft, Redfin and Zillow, but that was kind of it. And um, at, at you know senior levels, there weren't a lot of senior roles because they're just you know from a timing standpoint, they're just not that many. And um, so Scott Jacobson and Madrona had, had called me and said, "Hey, you need to talk to Carl. They have a great TAM, big product market fit, and they need some help with the product." And I met Carl, and um, between the time I met him and you know the time they made me an offer, like I talked to three or four different people, and they're like, "Oh, we love Carl." Um, and you know, it's a great business idea. And, you know, Carl picked up the phone and talked to a mutual acquaintance at Amazon said, Hey, is this Dave Glick guy any good? And she's like, Oh my God, you have to hire him immediately. And so we moved pretty quickly. Um, and so, you know, I met the leadership team and my feeling was like, we have a great TAM, we have a great product market fit. I can't help with those, but execution I can help with. And so like, I'll dive in and, and we'll see, I didn't know how many people there were like. I didn't know how many engineers they were. I didn't know anything about it. I think I, I heard uh, 10 days, right? Something like 10 days from meeting Carl, something around there. Yeah, 10 days from meeting Carl to signing my offer letter. Wow. And we had a, like a five-minute negotiation <laughs> That's it. where he said, uh, I'm offering you this much stock. I said, I want that much stock. And he said, okay, and we're done with the negotiation. And off to the races. And so since the then you were um, joining when there was about 22 engineers and... Uh, 12 engineers. 12 engineers. 22 people in the product team total. Okay. Okay. Wow. 12. And, okay. And so um, from, from kind of the word on the street, I mean, you're pushing three, four, 500 employees here coming up in the next year or so, right? Yeah. We're, we're getting to 300 this year and then we'll be, you know, more next year, you know, depending on what the, you know, what the future holds. Yeah. Uh, but we expect to continue to, to grow. Yeah. And so as a CTO, um, I'm assuming owning large budgets, working with the CEO, fundraising, what areas uh, in each stage are you uh, specifically focused in? Is there a blueprint? So uh, as a seed funded company, obviously product market fit as Series A, uh, creating a revenue growth, looking, moving forward without obviously giving away the, the secrets of the business. I mean, any key indicators or focuses uh, at post C that you're looking at to go D and beyond? Yeah, well, you know, I, I came in and, you know, my philosophy 
whether it's big company, small company, if you come to a new job, the first thing is put the house in order, right? And people like almost everywhere that I've joined has, it's not been like the customers have not been happy. And this isn't a flex necessarily, but it's in like Amazon fulfillment technology and transportation and ticket. Every job I've come into, uh, you know, the customers have been unhappy with us. And so first six months is like, let's, let's tighten the bolts. Let's get the house in order. Let's bail the water, whatever metaphor you want to use, make sure the customers are happy and get to stability. And, 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 it, and that is all focused around operational excellence, right? We need to deliver on time. When we deliver, it needs to work. And, you know, you come into a new environment and people don't know who you are and you don't know who they are. But one thing everybody agrees on is we should be operationally excellent. And so I always start with that. And while I'm doing that, that buys the time for hiring. Like, which, who are the right people I can bring in? And, you know, evaluating the talent and making sure we have the right people on the bus and the right people off the bus. So I always give myself a six-month uh, time frame, A, to put out the fires, and B, to get my, my direct report team in order. And so that's what I did when I joined Amazon. That's what I did when I joined Flex. I was lucky the you know the day after i signed my letter we hadn't announced anything and a friend called me from amazon her name is na lee and uh she's like dave i'm ready to leave i'm like well i can introduce you to other people there and she's like nope i want to come work for you and i said well i don't have anything and she's like really wow <laughs> and wow. Uh, so i'm like actually i do yeah. and she came in you know several weeks after i started and basically put the house in order and which allowed me to fly all over, over the country uh, shaking out WMSs, spend my time recruiting, spend my time doing podcasts, spend my time raising money. Yep. And uh, she was a lifesaver. And she was a director brought... of engineering, VP of engineering, some, somewhere in there? Yeah, we brought her in as director okay. of engineering. All right, cool. Um, and then over the next six months, I hired two more directors of engineering. Um, and then after, I think, about a year and a half, we as a company decided, I mean, I proposed it, but uh, Carl and Adam, our sales leader, we we agreed that um, I could add more value spending more time recruiting, like executive recruiting, and spending more time doing sales because I know people at Kraft Heinz and Kroger and Lowe's and Walmart and so on. Um, that, and, and we happened to have, uh, you know, we, we opened up and in, we interviewed both of our directors or all three of our directors to be VP of engineering. And we rolled that all up and um, it turned out that, Anthony Girolamo uh, took that role. And so he's now running the engineering team, you know, under my guidance, but, you know, he doesn't really need my guidance, but I, um, but now I spend a lot of time uh, talking to being very externally facing. Okay. Okay. And um, if you think about what startups need, they need customers and they need engineers and they need leaders. And so, you know, I decided that I was uniquely in a position to, to help us find customers, engineers, and leaders. And, you know, you can't outsource that to the recruiting team. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Uh, there are consistent themes coming through. And, it, you know, it's it's about people and leadership skills. One of the answers sometimes I get uh, from CTOs is come in and make sure the software is performant or make sure the architecture is right. And, and you almost come from a totally different perspective, business-facing, uh, customer First and work way back, which obviously uh, probably Amazon uh, drilled into you. But I, I love the approach. Yeah, one of the things when I got here, um, 
there was many of the engineers were saying, we, we just chase revenue. We have all this technical debt. We want to work on our technical debt. And we didn't change anything except for say, it's our job to chase revenue. Like as a startup, we will not be in business if we don't, if we don't land big customers and service them. And so, yes, like we, we do want to have operationally excellent software. We do want to have great architecture, but we need customers. And, and by getting more customers will allow us to hire more engineers, which will allow us to move in from th survival mode, which is where we were at two years ago, to building mode. And I just talked to an engineer at Amazon uh, last week, and he said, how do you know when you move from survival mode to building mode? And I said, I think we did last month. And here are the data points that I have to, uh, to back that up. And the first was, uh, we, we, we had a summit where we had all the people, the TPMs, the product managers, the solutions folks, all the people who need to understand our software uh, came in and had to use our software. And all these corporate folks came back and said, this, this thing sucks. It's unusable. <laughs> and um, Anthony said, well, this is not acceptable. We are going to stop what we're doing. And, we're gonna, and we put 50 tickets in. And we went and fixed all those 50 tickets in like two weeks. And then we, we did this three times. The third time, the group came in and said, man, this software is great. Awesome. And to me, that was an indicator that we, we stopped. We weren't like, oh, we are only trying to chase revenue. We can only do what our customers tell us to do. But we, can, we now have enough. We have 63 engineers in seat. So we have enough that we can allocate to doing the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. And the second data point was we had a sales summit. And the first line from Carl's mouth and from Adam's mouth was, not all revenue is good revenue. Oh, interesting. OK. Um, which is a departure. From most startups, yes. and uh, we actually we joke that Adam is the guy who says no to revenue, and I'm the guy who wants to say yes to all the revenue, which is weird for the CTO <laughs> versus the CRO. <laughs> totally, so we kind of got a, uh, and he's a quiet guy. He's an introvert, really, and he doesn't like to go out and see customers, and I do. So we we're, we're we are supporting each other's um, strengths and weaknesses. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Awesome. That, those indicators are incredible. Uh, you, you obviously, I mean, recruiting and building uh, a team, the culture is at the, the core focus of everything you do. How have you been feeling and, and how have you been able to build a remote culture? You've obviously, I don't remember exactly when you started, but most of your tenure there has been remote. I know traditionally Flex was in the office. How have you been able to do this? Yeah, I mean, a couple things. One is uh, we have an amazing HR team uh, led by Deirdre Renat, who used to be at Zulily. Um, but one of the things we came into this year for, we, we came into uh, 2020, we had three top level goals, growth, scalability, and inclusion. And maybe, this, maybe we came into 2021 with this. And I, um, I said, like, I, I don't agree. <laughs> We should have three top level goals, growth, growth, and growth, because we still need to grow. And, you know, we can't, you know, we are still in survival mode. And Deirdre and Carl and others said, nope, Dave, you know, we need to, we want to, and we need to build an inclusive culture uh, from now. And we can't wait until we're a billion dollar company to do so. And um, I can't, I've come around. I find myself talking very frequently 
to people uh, who want to ask me about the culture and is it an inclusive culture? And um, so we have put it front and center and it's a commitment that, um, that you know, we have great performers who get counseled and, and uh, managed because their, you know, their, their UX, <laughs> their user interface uh, is, is rough. And it's, and including me, I've gotten a lot of feedback um, and uh, you know, we take it pretty seriously that we want to build an inclusive culture and doing that remotely. I think uh, as long as everyone is remote, the playing field is fair mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and level. And as long as, you know, we're all just a face on the 49 faces in the zoom box, uh, I think it's good. And, and I don't think that's much harder. We, we have, you know, we have several people um, who have have gone out of their way to build activities and Slack channels and all these things. I, you know, just to be candid, I haven't uh, I haven't been deeply involved except for you know approving the funding right, uh, right. as needed for those things. But um, it, it's interesting. Like as a uh, proverbial old white guy, um, I'm good. But you know, as we have you know, call them Gen Z or millennials or, or folks who've grown up in a much more inclusive environment, uh, it's important. And, um, you know, I always check myself because we're having discussions about these and, and, you know, sometimes we'll end up with all the old white guys saying one thing and then others saying another thing. And I, you know, take that as a signal where I need to step back. And uh, even if it, it, it's not, it doesn't hit me viscerally, it's important. And so, that's a big learning that I've had. I do think it will be a challenge as people start going back into the office um, where you have two people on a team in the office and three remote or four in the office and one remote um, that it will not be a late level playing field. Yeah. And so we, we are spending a lot of time thinking about what guardrails and what policies and best practices can we put in place uh, so that people feel included when they're remote 100 percent it's a tough uh it's a tough problem to solve we, we're having many conversations around this as well likely to go back to a hybrid model but uh, you know when your top performers are continuing to maybe move out of the location it's all about the people and so uh, finding that balance and inclusion is I'll, I'll have to call you up in six months and uh see if i can i can pick your brain yeah as yeah. it relates to recruiting uh you know, I gave this talk a couple of years ago uh, called David vs. Goliath, and it was centered around what do you see the future of talent acquisition looking like when there's Amazon, Google, all of these, you know, big companies with ballooning stock prices uh, compared to your current situation. I know selling a vision is obviously important, but have you been, have you learned anything? Have you been surprised at anything? I mean, what's been your experience uh, having huge amount of funds at Amazon being able to go after principal engineers and recruiting for a startup like Flex? Yeah, um, it, it has been hard. <laughs> um, you know, and, and, you know, there's people say, well, Amazon has a cal salary cap of $160,000 or $175,000. Well, the so RSUs, can, yeah. But the RSUs, yeah. right? So it's liquid comp, yeah. or it's not cash comp, it's liquid comp. And especially with the inflated stock price there and Microsoft's stock price is quite nice over the last several years as well. And so if you figure that 80% of the engineers in Seattle work at Microsoft or Amazon just because of the size, um, you know, we had discussions, especially before we raised Series C, 
that we, we can't compete with Microsoft and Amazon for engineers. And my response was, we can't afford not to compete with Microsoft and Amazon for engineers. And so we obviously we can't compete on liquid comp, um, but- But base you know, salary take, and, yeah. You take salary plus uh, equity and, and we cannot compete on salary plus equity today, but you need to paint the picture uh, of what the equity will be worth at the next raise and the next raise. And again, I spent a bunch of time um, with exec folks, not with engineers recruiting. So I am dealing with senior managers, directors, VPs, and that equity pack, that package is highly equity weighted. Yes. Right. As you know, dealing with startups, nobody's making more than $200,000 to $250,000 in cash ish, yep. even at the executive levels. And so then uh, what, what I found is you can't poach people who don't want to be poached. Mm-hmm. And so, but there are lots of people in Seattle who are unhappy with their employer and unhappy with the culture at their employer. It, you know, not just at Amazon, Microsoft, like all over Seattle and all over the country. 100%. And so one thing we had to do is get our compensation to be competitive and to say, uh, you know, we are going to pay in a way that we can compete, not with Google and Facebook, because nobody can compete with Google and Facebook, but you should be able to compete with Amazon and Microsoft on a fully landed uh, total comp basis. And um, so that was a big um, call discussion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know, we had to go to the board and say like, we can't afford not to compete. And they wholeheartedly supported us and our new CFO did the modeling and it's gonna be expensive. It's gonna be millions of dollars. Um, but we, did, we made a decision as a company that we have to be competitive. But then, you know, they will always be able, like being competitive doesn't mean we're the highest offer. There will always be someone who pays better. Um, and so that's where our culture comes in. And what people like about a startup uh, is, uh, as opposed to a megacorp, is that you're much closer to the metal and you can make decisions quickly. Um, w- the downside of many startups is they can't afford to hire a senior leader. And so they're learning the HR processes and they are learning operational excellence. And, you know, many of them, their most senior talent, uh, their CTO could be a level six from Amazon hundred percent, or a level, yes. whatever, 52 from Microsoft. I don't know what the leveling scheme is over there, but someone, you know, more junior than I. And so the combination of, Hey, you're coming to a small environment where you can get stuff done and there's not a lot of bureaucracy. And we have senior leadership, uh, some of whom come from Amazon, some of whom come from Microsoft, some who came out of retirement um, because I've known them for 20 years. And so you build this core leadership team that is a competitive advantage in recruiting. And when people come and meet, you know, Julia Donald and Troy Roberts and so on, they're like, these are people I wanna work with and so, you know, getting the comp so it's not a you know, slap in the face yeah, and people can yeah. still take care of their families and then building the, the inclusive environment and, and being surrounded by highly talented people. Um, I think that's that's the mix. Yep, 100%. 100%. I, I totally understand it, the people is, is critical, uh, being able to sell the leadership op- uh, skill sets and uh, track record is, is massive. And I think that's why uh, I've heard such positive things about what you've been able to do there. Uh, last technical question, uh, machine learning, AI, I mean, it's being... Uh, 
talked about all over the place. Every company is doing it, although we could say some are, are just some basic statistical modeling. I mean, what's your uh, view of the future as it relates to that? Do you foresee that being a big play within Flex? And do you have any uh, philosophical uh, approaches to implementing machine learning and, and AI into the technology space? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, my favorite joke is, um, it's AI when you talk to investors, ML when you talk to engineers, and you do it on spreadsheets when you're actually yeah, doing it. Exactly. Excel functions. Uh, yeah, linear regression yeah. when you actually do it. And uh, I posted that on LinkedIn, and I got a ton of ton of views and comments and likes. And so I, I think there's some people get it. Um, that said, like Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Bill Gates all say that AI is the future. And um, they're they're right a lot, all three of them. But you know, for things like the Amazon Go store, you couldn't do it without AI. For things like uh, Tesla's self-driving car, you couldn't do it without, without AI. There are there are there are things that are going to be opened up by AI. There are problems that can be solved better by AI, like fraud, where you're trying to, you know, do a multivariate variate regression, and um, so that is important for putting things in boxes and putting them on a truck. It's not clear that AI is going to be core to our strategy. Um, you know, I, I do want to find some AI because all of our competitors are, are advertising their AI-powered platform, and I'm telling our marketing team, well, we should say AI-powered in all your your things, and they're like, you know, it's a fine <laughs> line between. Uh, exaggerating and fraud. Yes, yes, 100%, 100%. No, I, I've been, uh, prior to this conversation, I was uh, thinking about opportunities and, you know, if, if it's not where the customer needs it to be at this second, I, you know, being customer obsessed has obviously worked for you. And so maybe that comes up as, as more and more customers come on board or scale comes on board. But, you know, it, it it's, uh, needs to be right for the business. And so often we see people uh, trying to implement it or spending a ton of money on different on different tools when there's the simply the data is not even there to leverage it effectively. Yeah, for sure. And, um, it, you know, Amazon uses AI for do inventory placement. But when they were a $20 billion company, which still puts them in, you know, the Fortune 100, you know, that was all being done by spreadsheets. Yeah, yeah and uh, allocation factors and things like that, which are pretty static. So anyone who's not running at Amazon scale or Walmart scale, I, you know, I think uh, it's not clear that they need AI for their fulfillment and logistics. Yeah, 100%. Awesome. Well, uh, I guess my, my final question for you, I mean, you obviously came out of retirement. Uh, what gets you out of bed at, at uh, a day? Like, what, why did you come do this? What fuels you? Yeah, I mean, I was presenting at our sales summit last week, and I say there are three things that are important to me professionally. One is uh, people at our company. I mean, even more broadly than that, the people in my tribe, and many of those are at our company, and some of them are outside the company. And, and you know, I brought these people. They followed me to Flex. They came because I was here. And so making them proud, uh, and, you know, growing the business, taking care of those folks uh, is number one for me. Um, the second is uh, I set myself a goal to become a LinkedIn influencer, which means I need 100,000 100, followers. And, um, and so that might be another two-year project, but um, working on that. And the third is, you know, I want to make us all a bunch of money. <laughs> of course. And, and you know, my, my comp is equity-based. 
and but you know many of the other folks at Flex are, are equity based as well. Mm -hmm. And you know I brought a I brought many of these people in, but all these people are part of my um, call it tribe for lack of a better word. You know part of my friendship friend group and. And I want to make them all successful. And you know, some of them will be able to buy a house with their stock, and some of them will be able to buy an island with their stock. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, we want to make this amazingly successful. Well, I think you're uh, you're on track. I mean, the most recent uh, funding round was incredible, and uh, really excited for for you guys. So, for, you know, for all who's listening, I think go check out uh, Flex Career page. Uh, David, is that the best place to to see where there's opportunities to join your team or any other plugs that you'd like to add? Yeah, I definitely. Um, there was a there's a link on our site to the career page um, for senior folks. Please feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. I try to um, I try to respond to most everybody who writes to me, and you know I it's. A day doesn't go by that someone doesn't write and say, hey, I'm looking for career advice. Yes. <laughs> and, and so, you know, if they're, if they're credible, I, I usually spend half an hour and chat. And that's part of my, you know, and it's not like I want you to come to Flex. It's how can I help you find what you want? And I advise a bunch of companies in Seattle and they are always looking for people. And, uh, you know, I found that uh, helping people find the right thing for them not the right thing for me, but the right thing for them uh, pays off sort of both in karmic energy, but as well as if they go work at Target, maybe we that do customer. business with them. Or if they go yeah. work at Chewy, yeah. maybe we go do business with them. Yeah. And uh, so thinking expansively about the network and the tribe has been what I've put my focus into right, wrong, or indifferent over the last couple of years. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You. Thank you.